All right, so I am excited to go through the book of Malachi with you. Malachi is one of those books that is in the Old Testament, but it feels a lot like a New Testament book in some ways. And Malachi is something that I think is very, very applicable to us as a New Testament church. Because there are things that are easily transferable. There's a lot of stuff in the Old Testament that you read it and you think about it and you go, well, what does this have to do with me? What does the the priest robe dimensions have to do with my life in Christ? And it does have something to do with that. Don't hear me saying it doesn't. But it's a little more complicated. It's a little harder. It takes some seminary education to be able to kind of link those things up. But Malachi, honestly, it's pretty easy to go from point A to point B. But Malachi has some things in it that I think are really, really important and really, really meaningful for us. And so that's why I want to I take us through it. And so before I really dive into the text tonight, it's the reason we only have just a few verses, is because I want to give you some of the background because that's really important. Understanding the context of Malachi is important for knowing the things that are going to come from it. And so the first thing is this, the setting of Malachi. Malachi takes place sometime around the mid-5th century B.C. So that's around 450 B.C. So if you're keeping score at home, that's somewhere in the neighborhood of about 400 to 450 years before Jesus is born. Now, I know you hear B.C. and you automatically think Jesus was born in zero. That's not actually true. The, the way the calendar was set up, they kind of guesstimated it, but Jesus was probably born a little bit before zero. And so it's all kind of a little bit complicated to figure out. But essentially, Malachi was alive somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 years before Jesus. And this was the last book of the Old Testament to be written. So this is the last time that God spoke until John the Baptist showed up on the scene. Except for when the angels showed up and started telling the shepherds that Jesus was born. John the Baptist was the next real prophet to show up. So God is silent after the book of Malachi. All right. He was likely a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah. And sometimes we think the books of the Bible come chronologically. They don't. So even though Ezra and Nehemiah happen way earlier, if you flip through the Old Testament, they happen all around the same time. So the context of Ezra finding the scroll of the law and Nehemiah rebuilding the walls of the city, all of that happens kind of close together. They didn't necessarily live at the same time. They didn't necessarily overlap, but they're all kind of right in there together because they all take place after the Babylonian exile. Okay. And at this time they are living under Persian rule. Okay. So Persia is the the big power of the day and Persia is ruling over the land and Persia had some, some unique ways that they kind of ruled. They had governors that ruled over these areas, but they pretty much kind of let everybody do what they wanted. So they didn't have too much interference. I know like when we read the New Testament, we see the Romans having a lot of direct interference over the way that Israel could enforce their laws and do different things. That's not how it worked with the Persians. The Persians just kind of said, as long as you pay your taxes, you just kind of do whatever you want. And that also meant that, the two, that, that neighbors could fight with each other all the time. And Persia would kind of just be like, we don't really care. It doesn't really matter to us one way or the other. As long as you don't mess with us, you're good. Do whatever, you do your thing. Okay. 
The temple at this point has been reconstructed. We're going to see next week that they talk about the temple and sacrifices, and so we can, come, we can infer from that that the temple has been reconstructed by this time. But we also know that, that they are confined to a relatively small area. Israel, so at, at some point, Israel and Judah divided up into two different kingdoms. Israel is no longer. The kingdom of Israel was destroyed by the Assyrians and never came back. Okay? And so Judah kind of chugged along, chugged along, chugged along until they went into exile into Babylon. Then they came back. And so now they are, they're, they're, things are not as people think that they should be. Okay? They're confined to a small area. It's about 500 to 600 square miles. So for context, that's about the size of Los Angeles. Okay? Now remember, this is the nation of Israel that God has promised that they would have numbers greater than the stars in the sky, greater than the sands on the seashores, and they're confined to a land of uh, about the size of Los Angeles. And their population is about 150,000 people, give or take. So they're small, they're confined to a small area, they're pretty insignificant, they're ruled over by a foreign power. Remember, part of what God promised to them was that they would rule over all creation, right? That God would set Israel above all things, that they would be the city on the hill, right? And that's not what's happening. And also, they're constantly being terrorized by their neighbors. Because remember, they're still, they've been back a little while, but they're still not really well established, so they show back up into this land, and there's people still there. Sound familiar? Sounds kind of like what happened in Israel in the 1940s. They're given this land back. They show up, and there's people there that are like, uh, no, this is our land. And then there's lots of fighting. And that's what's happening here as well. And they're being terrorized by their neighbors, and they're especially terrorized by Edom. Edom, who are the descendants of Esau, they had significantly profited over Israel being carried off into captivity. When they were carried off into exile, Edom kind of said, all right, we're going to take all your stuff. We're going to live in your houses. This is our land now. This is our stuff. And so that's what's going on in the land of Judah at the time that Malachi is a prophet there. Okay. And I want to read something to you from Genesis chapter 25, because this is also important for the context that we're going to look at tonight. So this is Genesis chapter 25, verses 23 through 26. And what happens here is that Rebecca, who is Isaac's wife, is pregnant. And the Bible kind of says that her pregnancy, she feels very distressed, very disturbed. Things are, are not right. She feels kind of weird about the whole thing. And she prays and she says, you know, God, what's going on? And it says in Genesis 25, beginning verse 23, it says, And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. How about that? This is well before the days of ultrasounds. And so there was no way to know there were twins. She prayed. God said, hey, there's twins in there. Then she gave birth. And she, all along she's saying, God told me it's twins. And then she gives birth. Hey, look, it's twins. There were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. 
Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Now that is important for us to understand because Jacob, the, the, the one who will be served by the older brother, is the one who later had his name changed to Israel by God. Jacob is the one who fathered the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay? So that's, that's an important thing to know for our context here. And so as we look at Malachi, Malachi is laid out as six arguments that God has against his people. Ways that they have violated the covenant that they have with God. Things that they have done wrong. And so God says, you've done this. And the people go, how have we done that? It always begins with God saying, but you say, how have we done that? How have you done this? It recognizes wrong actions, but it truly cuts to the wrongness of their hearts. That's how God responds. He talks about things that they are doing wrong, but he digs deeper in talking about things that they are thinking wrong and feeling wrong and believing wrong. Now, the first one that we're going to look at tonight is a little odd because it's not God directly accusing Israel of wrongdoing. But their response gives us a window into something that's really wrong in their heart. So let's look together at Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. The title of my message tonight is God's love for his people. God's love for his people. And this is what it says in Malachi chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says this. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau, Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would open your word to us tonight. I pray that, that our hearts would be moved by your truth, that you would use me to speak rightly about your word, Father, that the words would not be mine, but that they would be yours. Change our hearts tonight in a ways that only you can by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Malachi starts with kind of like this opening statement. It says, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now, that is easy to gloss over because it's just kind of like, well, it's the introduction. You know, it's like you get a new book and there's the foreword in it. Anybody just skip straight over the foreword? Like, I didn't, I didn't buy this book to read what Jim Bob says about what this guy wrote. I want to read what this guy wrote, not what Jim Bob says. So we're tempted to just kind of jump past the introduction, but there's some, there's some things that are really significant here. First of all, it says the oracle of the word of the Lord. That word oracle is significant because it's not the one that's normally used. The word oracle carries a very urgent connotation. It's something that, that literally it's, it's God saying, I want you to pay attention right now. The oracle of the word of the Lord. That's the next thing. The word of the Lord. 
This is not what Malachi thinks about the culture of Israel. Okay? That's not what's happening here. When I get up and I preach to you, I am preaching to you about God's word. But the only time I am speaking God's word to you is when I'm reading my Bible. Okay? I am not the, I, I am not the oracle of God's word. But when we read what Malachi says, this is not social commentary. This is God himself speaking. And he's speaking to Israel. Now, it's really tempting there to go, well, what does that have to do with me? I'm not Israel. Wrong. If you are a Christian, you are Israel. Paul says so. Paul talks about how, in, in the book of Romans, he talks about how not everybody who is descended from Israel is Israel. So it's not just about who, what your lineage is. Thank God. Because there is literally no Jewish heritage in me whatsoever. And if it was about that, I would have no chance of salvation. But Paul talks about it and says that it has to do with the circumcision of the heart. That's an analogy for being made new in Christ. And so if you are a Christian, this is God's word to you. It's God's word to you. Now, just because you don't live in 450 BC in Judah, that doesn't mean it's not for you. This is not simply historical information. This is relevant to us as believers because it talks about our hearts toward God and it talks about our devotion to God. That's why Malachi is important. And just one last thing about that opening line, when it says by Malachi, Malachi is a name that literally means my messenger. Malachi was literally made for this. His name, he was named with this idea in mind of he is God's messenger. His name was significant. Now listen, my name is Corey. I don't know what that means. I don't think it really means anything significant. And even if it did, we don't really think about our names in the same way that they did back then. Just because you're named something doesn't mean you're going to be that. My mom could have named me great at basketball, and that would have been a horrible, horrible thing to name me because I'm terrible at basketball. But Malachi's name, it literally means my messenger. And he is God's messenger. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. What a way to start off a prophetic book, right? The prophetic books are usually like, you guys are all terrible and I'm going to destroy you. And here God goes, I've loved you. I've loved you. And instead of Israel saying, we love you too. Israel says, how have you loved us? See, Israel is in the midst of circumstances that are not what they expected, right? Prophecies told them that they would be lifted high to glory after exile, but that has not happened. They're back in their small little insignificant patch of land. Their temple is substandard. Their lives are hard. The ground doesn't grow. They're, living, they're supposedly living in the land of milk and honey. They can't grow crops. They're in the midst of famine. There's disease everywhere. Their neighbors come and steal their stuff and beat up their kids. And here's God saying, I've loved you. Their circumstances make them feel like 
are you sure about that? I don't feel very loved. And there's numerous reasons for why the Israelites are in the circumstances that they're in. And we're going to cover those over the next few weeks. But the biggest one is this. And this is so important for us to remember, so important for you to kind of implant in your brains and on your hearts. Brothers and sisters, God has a long view of redemption. When God makes a promise... We sometimes like to think of that, and Israel certainly did. Israel kind of had this problem where they would hear God's promise and they'd say, this is for me right this very minute. That is not how God's promises work. God often has other plans that are going to come to pass in the midst of that, right? And, and listen, it's easy for us to point at Israel and go, "How you, um, why can't you guys figure this out? We got this, we got this under control. We know what's going on. We do the same thing. How many of you have, have seen people who have coffee cups or journals or stuff like that with Jeremiah 29, 11 on it? People who tell you that that's their life verse. You've heard it. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a future and a hope. That is a very, very real, very true promise, but it ain't yours. It's not your promise. And to be completely frank with you, it wasn't even really a promise to the people that read it. Do you realize that the letter that that was written, when, it, when that letter was written to the exiles by Jeremiah, literally it says, in 70 years, the exile is going to be over. Literally, that's God saying, hey, listen, everybody who reads this letter, I'm not going to take you out of exile until you're all dead. That's literally what he said. And people put that on their coffee cups. Do you know what he was trying to tell them? My promises will stand. My promise was that Israel as a nation will continue. Why? Because Jesus hadn't come yet. Israel, was, Israel existed so that the Messiah could come, so that the church would be brought forth. That's why Israel existed. And that promise had not been fulfilled. And so he was telling these exiles, listen, you think this is about you and it's not. You're all going to die, and my promises are still true. Romans 8, 28. For all things work together for good. For those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We hear verses like that, and we think, only good things are going to happen to me. God promised in his word. Wrong. If you honestly think only good things are going to happen to you, I question whether you've read your Bible because we serve a Messiah that had bad things happen to him. And he was the only one who ever deserved to not have them happen. Over and over and over again, you see in scripture, God allowing bad things to happen to people and he used them for good purposes. Rightly understood, God's promises bring comfort. Wrongly understood, God's promises make us confused and bitter and angry. And that's what happened to Israel. Israel, instead of trusting God, they questioned his love. And this is so us. My wife is committed to me. Specifically, she is committed to loving me. And she does it exceptionally well. But there are times where she's loving me and it's not loving me the way I want her to love me. And the temptation is to say in my heart, well, if she really loved me, she would do this or that. I guess she doesn't love me at all. 
And you can laugh at me and you can say, oh, Corey's so dumb. Guess what? You've all thought the same thing and I know it. I know it because we're human. And in our humanity, we are so self-centered that we think everybody should do unto me as I want to be done unto. And that's where Israel was. But the, react the reality is we don't get to decide how people love us. We certainly don't get to decide how God loves us. God invented love. Seriously, you're going to tell the guy who invented love how to love you? That's crazy. That's like going to the guy who invented pizza and saying, hey, listen, I know you invented this really cool thing that you put cheese and pepperoni on it, but what if we put pineapple on it? <laughs> no. No. You don't get to declare to the creator of something how they should do that. But that's what Israel was doing. That's how Israel was responding in their heart to God. God saying, I have loved you. Literally for thousands of years, God has loved Israel and sustained Israel. Over and over again, they sinned and they failed and God still kept them. Why? Because he has loved them. Because he has loved them. They don't deserve that. All the way back to Jacob and Esau. We've been studying, I don't know what your Sunday school classes are studying. We, the youth, are studying the story of Jacob in the book of Genesis. And over and over again, Jacob does not deserve God's favor. And yet, God still shows it. Why? Because he loves Jacob. And God's response to me is so interesting. Because you would think when Israel says, how have you loved me? You would think God would start listing all the ways that he's loved them. Kind of like a parent does to their child. You don't love me? Oh yeah, well, I give you a place to live and I give you food to eat and I give you clothes on your back and I take you everywhere. I, you know, I do all these things for you, but you say I don't love you. Like It's tempting for God to just be like, here's all the ways I've loved you. But that's not what God does. He doesn't say, you don't know how I loved you. You're still here. You've returned from exile. You've rebuilt your temple. He literally just points to the fact that he has judged a different nation altogether. Says, this is how I've loved you. Jacob I've loved, but Esau I've hated. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. This is where the passage from Genesis comes in. Okay. God talks about how he has shown favor to Jacob and how he has rejected Esau, his twin brother. Now, I want you to understand what hate means in this context. Because hate does not always mean what we think of when we say hate, okay? Deuteronomy 23.7 says this. Now remember, Esau was also called Edom, and his people were called the Edomites, all right? You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian, because you were a sojourner in his land. You shall not abhor an Edomite, because he is your brother, so when he talks to Israel 
and he talks to them about how they should interact with Edom. He tells them, don't abhor them. Don't actively despise them and hope for their destruction. So when God says that he hates Esau and he hates Edom, he's specifically saying that he has shown favor to Jacob, but he has rejected Esau. That's what he's saying. Now, why? I don't know. He didn't, neither one of them deserved it. I don't know why. Because he's God and that's it. And there's sometimes, brothers and sisters, I know all of us and myself included, we really like to know answers to questions, especially as it relates to things like this from the Bible. Tough stuff, hard stuff. We look at it and we go, but why? Sometimes you just have to say, I don't know, and that's okay. God has revealed to us everything that we need to know from his scriptures. And if it's not there, then we don't need to know it. That's, all, that's, that's the only answer I can give you. All I can tell you is that this is what God has to say about it. So God has rejected them, but he hasn't just rejected them. He has kind of this long-term rejection of Edom right? He says, listen, if Edom even says like, we're shattered, but we're going to rebuild. God says, nope, they may build, but I'm going to tear it down. Because here's why God's judgment is a permanent judgment. And that's really important and really significant for us to remember. Because listen, brothers and sisters, God is a forgiving God. God is a gracious God. But there are times where God says, that's enough, and it's done. And if we try to kind of test the limits of God, the Bible talks about this, that there comes a point where your heart is just too hard. Now, that is not something that applies to believers. If you are truly in Christ, this is not what happens to you. This is specifically talking about non-believers. The book of Hebrews talks about this. People who are non-believers, but they have kind of tasted of the glory. They have been around believers. They have seen the things that God has done in their lives. And they kind of say things like, well, you know, maybe one day I'll accept Jesus. Maybe one day that'll be for me. Maybe one day I'll do that. And there comes a point in time where their heart, their heart is just too hard. And so there is a long-term rejection of Edom. And it actually says, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. That's what they will be called. So what does this mean to us? It means this, there but for the grace of God goes I. Listen, I have two brothers. We were raised in the same house, had the same circumstances around us. We're very different people, but the circumstances were the same. We had the same mom. Our dad wasn't there. We went to the same church. We were part of the same youth group. We heard the same preaching and teaching. One of us is a believer. One of us has rejected God altogether and is literally like actively anti-Christianity. The other one, praise God, he is clean and sober now, but for more than a decade struggled with hardcore addiction to drugs. The idea of there but for the grace of God goes I is very real to me. Why me? Why me? Why not my brothers? And I, 
pray and I cry and I, I can identify with Paul when he talks about in Romans where he says, I wish that I could be cut off that my brethren would know Christ. There but for God's grace goes I. He wants, he wants Israel to remember, listen, it is not because of you that I love you. It is because of me that I love you. And if you think you have it bad, you have no idea. Because Jacob has promises. Israel has promises that God is going to prosper them and give them a future and a hope. What is that future and hope? It's Jesus Christ. Every promise God made to Israel about lifting them high and ruling over all creation, all of that was about Jesus. Israel thought, oh, we're just so superior. We get to do that. And it was never about that at all. We do not deserve God's favor, but he gives it to us freely anyway. And sometimes the only evidence we have of God's favor is that we are still here in spite of all the many justifications that God would have to reject us outright. I had a conversation one time with a young man who was genuinely struggling over whether or not he was saved. And he's telling me, he says, I, I just... I don't know if I'm a Christian. I keep sinning and I hate it. And I said, stop right there. That's how I know you're a Christian. Because you hate it. You hate your sin. It breaks you to tears because God is still granting you repentance. Sometimes that is the only evidence of God's favor that we have in our lives. Everything else is falling apart around us. And yet, God is still with us because God is faithful to keep his promises. And God has promised us that he will never leave us or forsake us. He has promised us that he will be with us always, even to the end of the age. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is beside you every step of the way until you take your last breath or he comes from the skies. One or the other, Jesus is with you. He ain't going anywhere. It could be worse, but Israel forgot that. And so God is referencing future action that he's going to take against these people that are tormenting Israel. And that brings us to what our response should be to these things. He says in verse 5, your own eyes shall see this. So talking about the destruction of Edom, right? Edom says, we're shattered, but we're going to rebuild. And God says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. And he says, your own eyes shall see this. And you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Now, this is not a delighting in the destruction of someone else kind of way. But this is a God has been so good to us kind of way. My brother, my middle brother, the one who had, has had the long-term struggle with addiction, he overdosed three different times. Ended up in the hospital three different times. And every single time, my heart broke for my brother. And I was scared that my brother might die apart from Christ. But then do you know what the next thing I felt was? God, I'm so thankful for your grace and your mercy that that's not me. Because it could have just as easily been me rather than him. 
That's the kind of thing that he's talking about here. He's saying, when you see what I am going to do, you are going to praise my name because I have not destroyed you. As the world crumbles around us, even involving people who are close to us, as our own health may fail, as people we love may fall into sin, God is still God and he is still good. God has not changed. God has not stepped down off the throne to make a visit to the restroom and that's when things fall apart. God is actively ruling at all times. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that Jesus Christ is upholding the universe by the word of his power. Literally, Jesus Christ is continually speaking all things into existence at all times. This is not a passive God that we have. This is an active God who is ruling over all things, who is actively participating in your sanctification. Praise God. And so beyond the border of Israel, they will spread the testimony of that goodness. We deserve destruction, but we are not destroyed. What is that but our testimony? I deserve destruction, but I am not destroyed. That's your testimony. That's mine. And so guess what we're supposed to do? Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Get out of here and go tell those people that I should be destroyed, but I am not destroyed. Go tell people that God is on the throne and he delights in your salvation. Jesus Christ came and died to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That is what Malachi, what God himself wants Israel to understand. You ask, how have you loved us? I haven't destroyed you. Even though you deserved it. Seriously, go back sometime and just kind of peruse through the Old Testament and read about Israel over and over again. God says, stop that or I'm going to send you to exile. No, thanks. Fine. Go to exile. God, we won't do it again. We promise. God says, okay, you can come back. Don't do it again or you'll go to exile. No, thanks. We're going to do it again over and over and over again. And God, long suffering, did not destroy Israel. Preserved them preserved his people so that through them Jesus Christ would come. Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel because I deserve destruction but I am not destroyed. Let's pray together. Father, I am humbled. I am awestruck at your words. So often my heart falls into sinful tendencies to question your love based on my circumstances. Forgetting, Lord, that my circumstances exist because you gave them to me for my good. And so, Father, I pray that I would see you as good, that we would see you as good, that our hearts would trust you always and rejoice because we are not destroyed.
Father, please bless this church. Please bless us, Father, not with health, not with, mon- not with money, not with status, but Father, bless us with holiness. Bless us with Christ-likeness. Bless us with closeness to you through your Holy Spirit. Bless us with a love for your word and a desire to live it out moment by moment. And I pray, Lord, that that would start with me. Break my heart over sin. Convict me of sin and of righteousness, Lord. Help us to walk in your ways, to rejoice in your statutes, to love Christ with all that we are, and to devote our lives to him always. We pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen.